This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. So today we have Matt Bergeron on the podcast. Hey, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Hello, Matt. Uh, Matt's the director of product at Supply Frame. Mm -hmm. And um, in addition to his professional capabilities, also has a a sideline of teaching people how to make printed (laughs) circuit boards. Correct. Correct. Very much. That's my labor of love. I would like to, I'm, I'm really excited that you're here today because I'm, I like what Supply Frame is doing because I think that there's, people are talking about how like hardware is the new software and how hardware mm-hmm. is like becoming super easy and accessible and stuff. But in reality, those of us who build hardware know that it is like stuck in kind of the night where software was in the nineties before sure. we had like all the whatevers.js with like nice integrations and like GitHub and everything. And I think that a big thing that makes hardware development so slow and difficult now is just like the tools of mm. of like how you find components, how you communicate designs with other people, how you get help for things, how you whatever. Like the, in hardware, there's no real, like you've got a breadboard on your desk, you don't know what's going on. You don't know like where to get the parts from. You can't just like instantiate mm-hmm. it like a make mm-hmm. file. If there's something going wrong with it, you can't just like upload a code snippet to Stack Overflow. You have to like poke at it and figure out what's going on. And, and I mean, I've got this, I think I've mentioned this anecdote on the podcast before, you know, I was using the, I think it was the linear tech or whoever mm-hmm. filter design tool a year ago, and I got an error message that that helpfully offered me a fax number if I wanted to get a hold of them. <laughs> you know, whereas all my friends who are doing software, I mean, look at the tools that those guys have access to in order to do their work. And, sure. and we wonder why why hardware is slower and more expensive than software right now. And I think mm. that you've probably spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, no, I have. I have. I mean, uh, you know, I did a talk uh, recently about this concept of what I'd sort of coined as generative circuits, right? And the idea was, is that you know, hardware is largely difficult because our process is fundamentally flawed in hardware. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, is that every engineer sort of approaches uh, hardware development and every aspect of hardware development as though they're solving a new problem, right? USB is a new problem for company A, company B, company C, and they, you know, they all sort of continue to solve that problem uh, independently. And, uh, you know, part of part of being able to move electronics forward, and I think this is part of what, what sort of underpins uh, one of the undercurrents of this whole hardware renaissance that's happened is uh, the availability of really good resources sort of moving up one layer of abstraction and saying, you know, let's just mm-hmm. treat USB as as a problem. And, and it's Someone's a figured this out before. How do we make it an HID device? Do we need to remake our own profile? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, it, it, that, that's, that's a frustration. You know, I, I was doing a project uh, back in, I don't know, 2000. Three two thousand four, 2004, uh, which was sort of my first play on connected devices. The 900 megahertz spec for Zigbee was, you know, the ink was barely dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the goal was actually to network together a, um, a fast food restaurant um, mm-hmm. with the hope that the corporate overlords 
could have better visibility into what was going on in the franchise operations and also in these other operations where they were putting you know tremendous trust in the people who are actually managing those facilities. So networking together, the, the process-related stuff, like how, you know figuring out when the drink machine gets refilled and well, like exactly, that. exactly. But then also you know things which really tie into food safety, which have tremendous economic consequences, right? Mm-hmm. How long was the freezer door open? Mm-hmm. How many times did the bathroom door open and close? Uh, how many times did somebody open up the wastebasket to throw something away? So simple, you know, simple engineering problems, right? Dry closures and things like that. Simple yeah. timers, temperature sensors, basic stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But this too. 2003, 2004, you know. And interestingly enough, you know, I was looking for solutions in that space and everybody was sort of solving the Ethernet problem. They were solving the USB problem, right? FTDI kind of came up through that as the company that was going to take your serial port and turn it into a USB port, right? Mm-hmm. And that was that was sort of the promise from them. Other companies like Rabbit Semiconductor emerged there with a technology to say, hey, just take your serial data and push it out over Ethernet. We'll solve all of those problems. And, you know, as, as, as an engineer who, who simultaneously you know, maybe I'm profoundly lazy. I don't know what it is, but, <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was looking for simple solutions to some of these things where I had a very small engineering group and I couldn't really go in there and spend all of my time trying to figure out ethernet and solve yeah. the ethernet problem. Rabbit Semiconductor came up with the software stack and all the resources and whatnot. And, you know, Rabbit Semiconductor just, you know, as far as history is concerned, they eventually were acquired by, uh, by the people who did the, the XB modules. And then later, mm. you know, they kind of merged. Digi. Digi, right. So they merged and eventually became Digi, right? I see. Mm. So it was, I think, MacStream and then, and, then, and then it became Digi. But, you know, I think what's happened in this hardware renaissance is, is really the, the uh, sort of proliferation of these sort of modular blocks, right? These pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think the Shield concept was one of those things which... which sort of set the stage for that in in probably the first real sort of profound and you talking, you, you're, you're talking about Arduino shields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arduino shields and, and whether they're Arduino shields or they're something which plugs into the BeagleBone or they're the ESP modules or, or whatever they are. I right? think it's funny because I think that the popularity of shields is kind of born out of the weird header layout of the Arduino and so <laughs> right. it, kind of, it kind of like sideways forced some standardization upon an right. otherwise open source free for all right. because it gave everyone an even less pleasant thing to work with than right. serial Yeah, (laughs) but then everyone, you know, had, you know, there was a form factor that you must subscribe to if you want to work with Arduino now. And so it, right. Yeah. Right. But I think there's, you know, what, what, what was also one of the sort of key undercurrents of that was the fact that you had these plug-in elements, but then equally for those things to be valid, they also needed to include the software drivers and and services and all Mm -hmm. the other resources that you need to make it work in this environment. And I think, you know, what that, what that sort of does is move the whole abstraction up one layer and say that we're not treating this as a hardware problem. We're treating this as, as both simultaneously a hardware problem and a software problem. And we're defining these things in terms of what I'd kind of coin capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, people don't care what chip is inside of their mobile phone. They care what capabilities it has, how many photos it can store, whether or not it can play video, whether or not it can play audio, whether or not it can be charged over USB, all of the other sort of aspects uh, uh, that, that are defining aspects of a product. And, you know, I think one of the things that unfortunately has not occurred in traditional hardware engineering is that we haven't really thought about those problems in those terms. Uh, we, and, and coming from a long experience in the design tool space, I worked at Altium. I was one of the directors at Altium for, for better part of about 12 or 13 years, uh, working on Altium Designer and spent a lot of time in front of customers and a lot of time on site at, at various companies was that every company was sort of solving these problems for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. USB was mm-hmm. the first time that anybody had ever solved USB. When in reality, that wasn't the case. 
uh, audio. You know, this is. Are you talking about from a hardware standpoint, or like the actual physical, or sorry, I mean the actual physical hardware standpoint, or from the software standpoint? Well, I think it's actually both, mm -hmm. right? So I think yeah. the physical hardware, you know, just tends to pervade physical hardware because software engineers have this uh, tendency to adopt or or you know even adapt existing software code to whatever their application yeah because i can go and get snippets of code for a driver for any new part but like if i want to get a, a layout for a new chip that i'm working with like the best i can do is like maybe finding an application schematic in the data right. sheet sometimes they give you a picture of a layout mm -hmm. sometimes if you're really lucky they give you like an ultium file or something that doesn't ever happen you have to like reinvent it yourself Right. Well, and even if they do give you the application schematic, it's like, what's the, you know, what's the standard form for that? Yeah. When you have five or six different shaped? really dominant tools, you know, everything from, you know, how the schematic is drawn to whether or not they, you know, oftentimes in, in application schematics, they don't provide you with component values. Yeah. So, hey, you know, these things are dependent on the circuit. There's no standard. Yeah, there really is no standard for that. And, you know, this concept of, of generative circuits, which is this thing that I've been riffing on recently, is really sort of looking at it and saying, okay, how do you isolate these independent capabilities? And then say, you know, build a platform for actually sharing those resources, moving up that whole layer of design abstraction, sort of one level above that. And interestingly enough, as, as, as I've been exploring that space quite a bit, the one thing, one thing emerges from that, which is you can almost turn the whole design process on its head hmm. and say, from the software standpoint, could you actually drive hardware development? rather than having to establish a hardware platform and then sort of write the software drivers and services and resources mm -hmm. around that. Um, and, and that can go all the way up through to the level of JavaScript. So, so you're saying like you code the behavior that you want and then when you compile it, it also knows which hardware it needs to pull into the design in order to implement the features that you... Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, once you implement that temperature sensing API, or rather, you know, just from the JavaScript level, you say that, hey, you know, I want to reach out and interface to the real world, and I want temperature. Yeah. And here's my low temp, here's my high temp, and these are, you know, this is a level of precision that I want. You should almost be able to extract from that what components what match. What component that you need, yeah. That, uh, that if you compile it and you get a binary out, why shouldn't you also get a PCB out? Because well, it, it, exactly. you know, if it's like exactly. a couple of chips and like, yeah. Yeah, so one sure. of the things I've been experimenting with actually generates a JSON file, which is, in effect, a PCB netlist, right? It's huh. a collection of components and their connections. Oh, that's dope. Um, and from there, I can then convert that because it's in JSON. I can convert that to a PCB netlist for, for generally any sort of PCB mm -hmm. editor that might be out there. Um, but you still have to lay it out yourself, though. Yeah, so, so you know, that's one, of the, that's one of the sort of current barriers with that. But then... It's a real bummer, David. This thing, yeah. this thing yeah. only produces the yeah. list of <laughs> parts yeah. of their connections. But, but if you actually go one layer even above that and you say, okay, let me get the collect full collection of components which are required to, uh, to implement that temperature sensor, because it's not just a temperature sensor. It's not X part number. It is the temperature sensor plus its decoupling plus it, you know, maybe a couple of resistors or something like that, which set some parameters in, in terms of that component. Uh, if you think about those as simply sub-circuit elements, then actually you could have a predefined layout for that mm -hmm. part yeah. uh, of the circuit mm. and that could, could even be cost-optimized based on on price, but also board area, mm -hmm. um, component size, solderability, all of those other sorts of things. Interestingly enough, if you take that sort of one step further and you implement all of those as independent 
blocks, say as, as like dip packages with pins on them that you could stick down into a breadboard already broken out onto, onto their own PCBs as independent elements. Then from there, the software could actually drive what the breadboard configuration would be hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So it would be, okay, here's my software and it implements A, B, C, D, E. And on the breadboard, I simply just line up board A, board B, board C, board D. And, and that's really just a matter then of connecting those things together because you know the interfaces between these things are relatively simple these days, right? Yeah, we yeah. sort of settled on SPI or I squared C or you know, that's true. the UART. There's just not a lot of complexity there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you can resolve these things to those really small sort of, uh, you know, almost discretize that that block and say, hey, it's just in terms of its inputs and outputs. And we've done this. We've got well, a like long history of this. Like VLSI, like that's, exactly. how, that's how you do it. When exactly. You're doing VLSI, so, you know, yeah. if you're doing FPGA development, you know, you've got a wishbone bus, an Avalon bus, all these mm-hmm. other sorts of things, which provide a standard interface to these things. But then also it, it reflects the software model, right? Mm-hmm. Where we treat APIs in terms of their inputs and their outputs. You know, what can this service provide me in terms of data? And what information do I need to give uh, that piece of software so I get that information back? So and I, I know a lot of people who have been talking about, like, we should make hardware more modular, like software mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you seem to be further along on that continuum than, than many <laughs> people that I know. But obviously, it's a thing that people see value in and want to do. So, mm-hmm. like, what are the hard parts of, of doing this? Well, I think there's... there's Because the dream is you want to, like, write some behavior you want to write some code and then push a button then have it come out with a have it come out with a binary and have it come out with a fabrication file ready to send off to the factory right. for your device right. right so like what what's the actual hard parts of putting together so I think that pipeline yeah so i think there are two aspects of that one are one are real hard problems and the other are, are uh what organization characterizes sort of organizational right behavioral problems right um, and I think the behavioral problems are actually more threatening than, than the real hard problems. I mean, it is a hard problem to solve, but it's a knowable problem. I spent a long time in the EDA space. And I, auto I, routers, I mean, auto routers never can solve the auto those. router. Well, like, you know, but, they, but if you simplify the interface. And if you set up the constraints. And right, you set up the constraints correctly, you can get pretty far with that. Work, and right. I know that, you know, there's this, oh, the heresy, you know, somebody's actually going mm. to promote using auto routing for those things. And it may be that it's still an interactive routing process, but routing actually isn't the hardest part of the design process. You know, a few exceptions aside, right? High-speed routing, impedance-controlled routing. Yeah. But if you think about the mod, if you think about these things modularly, the eighty percent case anyway. Well, but if you yeah. think about these things modularly, you can actually bury all of that complexity in the module. So the modular element actually solves for all of those problems. And then you just plop exactly, the and that together. allows you to leverage the resources in an engineering organization yep. much more effectively. Because now I have somebody who's really good at power supply design mm-hmm. that can solve the power supply problem yeah. one time. Right? Mm-hmm. Give me, give me a buck regulator. Give me a boost regulator. Give me a buck boost regulator. Give me some linear thing. Mm-hmm. These are the inputs that I want to be able to support in these. So were you, were you the man behind support. snippets at Altium then? <laughs> I was a huge uh, advocate for it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I wasn't the the guy that made the decision to actually go ahead and implement it, but I was the one that really pushed the modular design methodology. So that yeah. was uh, myself and Nick Martin, who was then CEO at Altium. Uh, he and I sort of. Defining that next see, see. big wave of electronics. Okay, so so you're saying so you're saying that then the the, the behavioral problems. Yeah, the so the behavioral ones. problem is is really getting organizations to sort of uh, think about these problems in these ways, right? Um, just a, a an example from my own experience. You know, when I was at Altium, we built you know four or five, six different development boards before I took over the hardware development team. Um, 
after taking over the hardware development team, we decided that we would go head on at this modular design methodology and and try to solve uh, these problems, discretize these functions, encapsulate these capabilities in this way in which we could reuse them. What's interesting is is you don't actually need a huge range of those elements, right? Mm. This was Neil Gershenfeld at SolidCon talking about uh, you know a linear change in system elements creates this exponential growth in, in capability, right? Mm -hmm. Electronics is not infinitely subdividable. Mm -hmm. which, is, which is great for this methodology, but you've got to get people to actually understand the value in this. Um, it's you know, like, from, like the open source software value. You've got to get people to understand the value in writing a, a, a database driver or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. And you know, we, we actually have a long history of that in the software space, but not so much in the hardware space. You know, when you think about communications, how many communications interfaces are there, right? There's Wi-Fi, there, there's Zigbee, there's uh, Bluetooth. You know, we do some it's Ethernet, really not but not many. a lot. Yeah. It's just not that many. So, you know, what I did was just kind of a quick analysis across the field and said, okay, you know, what sensors do I need? What controllers do I need? What would be the the intelligent core of that system? You know, it's probably going to be ARM-based. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had two or three different ARM-based designs, what could I actually do with those things? Mm -hmm. And uh, then from there with the communications backend, power supplies, that sort of thing, you begin to be able to stitch together systems really, really rapidly. You know, the net net is, is that from all of that, from, from all of that sort of analysis, it boiled down to about 200 different system elements or 250 mm -hmm. different system elements. And I could build almost anything. Hmm. And I totally realized that, you, yeah. you know, going mm -hmm. back to kind of the anecdote about, uh, about this project that I had done for the fast food industry, that's really what I was solving even back then. It was saying, okay, well, you know, what do I want to sense? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I need some dry closure so I know when something is open, I can tell somebody, hey, the safe door is open. Yeah. Um, so, you know, interestingly enough, we built a whole bunch of these different system elements, both inside of Altium and then with this other company that uh, that Nick Martin and I had started uh, after leaving the company. And uh, at this point, you know, I can build 50, 60, 100,000 different designs from this relatively small pool of different elements. So have, have you made this for yourself and you use this for yourself and your own designs and are now trying to figure out how to yeah, so I encapsulate think, uh, it for more things? So, like so it, it's definitely a behavior that I've adopted, mm -hmm. but it's also a behavior that we adopted as a company. It was actually one of the driving forces behind the decision to uh, take a job or take a role over at Supply Frame. Um, you know, here was this company uh, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with supply frame, but the in, there's there's sort of two aspects of the business or two major di dimensions of the business from my own perspective, right? Uh, one of which was a sort of traditional ads and e-commerce business, but then the other side was really vertical search for electronics, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and vertical search for electronics, if you want to sort of translate that down into normal sort of human speech, is how do I connect a designer's intent with some piece of content, right? And that's buzzwordy and a bit mm -hmm. hand wavy. But I have something that I want to design. How do I find out what components are available to me? How do I come up with solutions for that? Where are all the reference designs, data sheets, blog posts, all of the other information that might be associated because, with those because so, so for our listeners who may not do a lot of electronic design, I mean, when you're, when you're designing a thing, there's, there's millions of different kinds of components. Like you go on online and you want to find a resistor. You want to find a 10K resistor. There are hundreds of thousands of, of 10K resistors or, you know, different chips, different sensors, whatever. And there's no standards. The only thing that you'll get that you're mostly guaranteed to get is a data sheet, which will tell right. you like how to not break the chip. And if you're lucky, <laughs> it'll have like a schematic with a reference design that like shows you how to hook it up. Right. And, you know, there's so much uh, sort of copy and paste that occurs in that space. And, and maybe it's not 
actual copy and paste, but so much duplication of the content which exists in this one format mm -hmm. and sort of conversion of that into this other format, whether that's writing device drivers or that's recapturing the application schematic. I mean, let's face it, you know, most engineers, there's a great quote by Kevin Morris, the guy who writes for FPGA Journal, uh, where he says that, you know, engineers are in constant fear of being found out, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is absolutely <laughs> true, right? Yeah. We're afraid of the fact that somebody's going to ask us a question about something, ask us to develop something, we won't know how to do it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And our longevity, our, our, our success is tied to our ability to somehow be omniscient, yeah, right? Yeah. And the reality is, is we're not. Um, so oftentimes we do duplicate a lot of stuff which comes from data sheets. That's also, you know, shortest path to victory sort of thing. Interestingly enough, you know, when I signed on to SupplyFrame, uh, I realized that what they were tracking in their database was something like 100 million data sheets. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, for me as, a, as an engineer, I didn't know that there were 100 million components in the yeah. world. Yeah. And I'm not sure that SupplyFrame has every component in the world even captured in that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of places, Shenzhen Semiconductor number four, yeah, which yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> you know, are producing a whole host yeah. of different components that I don't have any visibility into. But the, uh, the amount of content that existed in that space was super interesting. Another aspect of that were all of the sort of secondary assets and resources that manufacturers, distributors, even... Uh, just sort of users in the community or engineers who actually do share their stuff produce, you know, there's extraordinary like application notes, application notes, but mm -hmm. then, you know, Altium files, Eagle files, all yeah. of these other mm -hmm. sorts of things, uh, which are incredible assets mm -hmm. because they're so close to what I need, yeah. which is just a simplified way in which I can implement that block in my yeah. own design tools. And, you know, really there's sort of a, if you think about it, I guess, in terms of kind of concentric circles, there's this sort of continuum of risk, right? If I go to TI's website, the reference design that I get from, from TI should be pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. It's their chip. They understand the internals mm -hmm. better than probably anybody else on the planet. Yeah. Um, Plus it's a brand that, that aims to be reputable, unlike, exactly. say, Shenzhen Semiconductor number four. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I've got this great collection of resources which I can pull from TI, and that may be schematic symbols, PCB footprints, 3D models, SPICE models, IBIS models, all of these other sorts of things, but then also these application schematics, all their evaluation boards, all of the content which exists in, in that space. Um, you know, those should be resources that I have visibility into. And I think, you know, when you think about the, the organization of a company around sort of vertical search for this mm -hmm. one uh, reasonably complex vertical of electronics, we should be able to, to attach those assets to the capability, mm -hmm. uh, not isolate those assets based on, hey, you know, you have to know a part number it's like, first. It's like, it's like automatically compiling dependencies, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, imagine how terrible that software development would be if like, if you didn't have like apt-get or brew or something that right. like when you want to install a new tool, it like automatically knows to go back and like make the things and make the things and make the things yeah. and make the things like, like, right. like it's annoying as a software developer when you're stuck in dependency hell for a couple of days and all your friends are like, <laughs> oh man, I'm really sorry about that. Like, like <laughs> life as a hardware developer is is dependency hell. Yeah, right. but it takes like, a lot longer to fix that dependency than it does yeah. to, say, install a new C compiler, which is like what <laughs> yeah, you end right. up doing in software <laughs> dependency Yeah, hell. but like it shouldn't work. Like, like I mean, it's some, something has gone wrong if you get into that state in software development because it's amazing that we've gotten to the point in software development that like we have systems which you can like instantiate something and it goes back and puts it all together. Like there isn't that in, in hardware. It's like standard yeah. that you don't expect. Yeah, the, the basic metadata problem i mean you guys are doing god's work <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly because yeah. it, it, it 
even before you get to this matter of like dependencies and, and reasonably sophisticated understanding of what these components can do and how they need to be connected, there's this huge metadata problem that hasn't been solved yet. Like right. if you go to oh, DigiKey yeah. and start to search for transformers, mm -hmm. you'll find that um, in the filter list of primary voltages, 24 volts comes after 120 volts <laughs> because it's sorted alphabetically <laughs> and 24 yeah. comes after 120 when you yeah. sort alphabetically. Not only that, but 24 volts also comes after a transformer whose primary voltage is a range from 12 volts to 120 volts. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's no way to overcome that. You yeah. have to do like a multi-select. Mm -hmm. If you yeah. want a transformer that takes 12 volts in or 24 volts input, you have to go down the list and like command select 40 different input <laughs> right. ranges. Learning how to navigate DigiKey search is like a rite of passage for... <laughs> no, absolutely. Right, right. absolutely. Well, and it's I one love, of those I things. love DigiKey though. They're very nice people. No, no, no. <laughs> no. And I interestingly <laughs> enough though, they're kind of the gold standard for when people go and start to explore new components. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll just start on DigiKey because we've all become sort of conditioned to accept that the DigiKey search is the search, right? Mm -hmm. That's the mechanism by which we sort of start to explore narrow new down. And you know, interestingly enough, it's you know, it's great if you uh, if you if your target is to really get down to an individual component, they've got they've got some really good resources for that. Them. But I think there's what's missing in that there is that sort of one layer up from that, which is, do I really care about the component, or could I black box this at a more abstract level? Mm -hmm. And uh, and from there, those elements could actually be swapped out, somewhat obfuscated from from me as the person yeah. who's actually doing the design. Where you know there are issues of cost optimization and lead time and all of those other sorts of things, which could be which could be factored into that. Now it is it's a bit disconcerting, probably for a number of people. I mean, first of all, you know I don't know that the semiconductor companies would be particularly excited about the fact that their components could just be swapped out for any mm -hmm. other component. But they are already, though. I but mean, they it's are. like they how are. many 3.3 volt linear regulators in, in SOT23 are there? Right. Like, right. come on, like, right. who cares? Right. And I think the, you know, the real differentiated position, uh, you know, you've got that commodity problem where it's just a race to the bottom, but then the real differentiated position is going to happen at the, at the level of, you know, high precision analog circuitry exactly, or yeah. high performance, high speed digital stuff. So, you know, if, as long as they continue to solve those problems, then their revenues are pretty well, well protected. Yeah. Or there's a differentiator to be had in becoming one of the first uh, semiconductor manufacturers to embrace this and to right. offer your stuff as a module that engineers won't have to pull their hair out in order to implement. Right, right. So, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, in the supply frame context, we've explored because we have access to all these data sheets and we have access to all the content that kind of uh, exists in, in addition to that, right? As I said, you know, model files and, and schematics and even PCB documents uh, is how do we sort of organize that and kind of triangulate those things at various levels. And that kind of brings it all back to keyword search at some sort of If there's one industry level. that needs more social media features, <laughs> it is the electronics <laughs> component selection thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, imagine if when you're searching on DigiKey, if you could look at like user comment discussion uh -huh. on mm -hmm. like this part and yeah. 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 You know, whatever you do, do not connect this yeah, this yeah. way. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Or like the data sheets, the data sheets weird and it's like misleading because like, oh, I got confused because it's like shut down instead of not shut down and I tied <laughs> yeah. it to ground and made some coasters. Yeah. So, but, you know, organizing that data and really trying to understand it, being able to, you know, run a pass across a data sheet and look at, well, well, what's it saying, right? Mm -hmm. Computationally figuring out what it's saying, you know, mm -hmm. what, what's the text inside of the data sheet? Being able to extract from that what bills of materials 
are being used by reference designs, right? Even if I get a PDF reference design, can I open up a PDF reference design? Can I search across it? Can I find everything which looks like a part number? Mm -hmm. And then can I associate that with pricing and availability and, and create a normalized bill of materials? But it's just so ridiculous that like in order to get to this goal of having modular software, you're thinking about things like computationally parsing PDFs. Right, right. Like, but, you know, unfortunately, yeah. I think there's, and this this gets to one of the sort of fundamental problems is that we have this uh, incredible inertia because we have this extraordinary amount of content which was never designed with any of this in mind. Right, and we're not going to go back and remake it. And nobody wants to go back and remake it. Um, there are, you know, for every chip that's ever been manufactured at any manufacturer, there is a reference design. Yep. It may not be a public design, but somebody, <laughs> you can bet, got the chip uh -huh. back, put it onto a board, brought it into the lab, stuck it up on, on a scope, and actually took a look at how that chip performs and ran it through a whole series of tests to make sure that the silicon does exactly what it was supposed mm -hmm. to do. So, you know, there's this extraordinary wealth of content out there. How do you actually unlock it? You know, how do you sort of relate that down to, uh, to the parametric search of that thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To be able to say, oh, okay, yeah, this has an SPI bus. This has an I2C bus. Uh, if I'm building a system which requires that this thing needs to be connected via SPI, okay, great. That's a great way for me to filter these things. And it kind of gets back to the DigiKey search, but you can actually sort of take that up one level and say, this block of circuitry, the interface, the normalized interface to this block of circuitry is SPI with the 3.3 volt power supply uh, yeah. and you know a return. It's not that complicated. It really isn't. It really isn't. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, we've had this opportunity now, I've, I've had this opportunity now to look at this data for, for uh, about the last two years. And it's extraordinary how much uh, you can do to sort of wrap this stuff up and, and mm -hmm. prepackage it. And as we're moving forward, that's a lot of the stuff that we're actually working on and a lot of the things that I think are really interesting. It's, it's what really inspires me in this space. You know, it's actually what, what inspired me to start doing workshops and things like that too, was, you know, how do I make electronics accessible to these other people? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in answering the question of how then do you create momentum for something like that, um, you really just have to look at the numbers because right now there are 30 software developers for every hardware engineer in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's not only a tremendous bottleneck, but if you accept the premise that the next generation of products are going to be some hybrid of hardware mm -hmm. and software. And really what it is, is hardware is the means to interact with the real world. Mm -hmm. And I wanna be able to write software applications that can interact with the real world. If you sort of accept that as the premise, then there is this massive blue ocean out there yeah. that is the kind of thing that uh, should present tremendous opportunity to semiconductor manufacturers or yeah. anybody yeah. else who kind of wants to get this into is that. A, an interesting an interesting counter idea to um, to one of the prevailing concepts of how this is going to play out, mm -hmm. which is that um, everything is just going to get generalized to the point where it's programmable in high level programming languages, mm -hmm. and the electronics don't matter because like the mm -hmm. you know processors are so cheap, they're so efficient. Yeah, but the you just throw factors. a microcontroller in and, and use JavaScript. I mean, but this is a different this is a different oh, but th approach. That I is like true, but it's like it's where where it is where is the microcontroller in relation to the screen and everything else like when we live in a physical world we have hands with fingers we perceive mm -hmm. things and touch things in different ways and like yeah every single piece of electronics that we have is made using the same you know it's like taco bell using the same ingredients <laughs> but like your ipad is the same thing on the inside as your laptop basically 
mm-hmm. but you use them for completely different things. And I think that people are starting to get over the idea that you can that there's an app for everything because like not everything that you want to do in the real world can be accomplished by a little rectangular piece of glass, even though it has the same components inside of it. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting about... But it's just not practical right, right now to like, to like, you know, it's way more practical to like spend a weekend in your room with some ramen, like making making an <laughs> app that like mostly does what you want, but like it's it's like prohibitively cost and time expensive right. to, to do the same thing in yeah. hardware. Yeah, I don't have any products at my house which have an Arduino inside, right? Yeah. Um, but I think there is... Uh, coin if you have a coin <laughs> okay okay <laughs> does it really uh, does coin really have an arduino inside or it just has i know an i know their i know their dev kits did okay huh. um, okay sorry that was a side track. but anyway yeah yeah but point taken you're right yeah right right well i think you know just kind of disrupting this whole iot space for a minute you know the premise that this is somehow about my ability to control my toaster with the phone or my ability to uh interface with my air conditioning system with the phone, you you know, that doesn't get anywhere near what this space is really about. What it's really about is the aggregate of information from a whole bunch of different sources. And at some level, those sources are going to have to be distributed. So it's small modular temperature sensors that I can stick in a bunch of different spots. You know, my kind of use case for this is I designed a smoke detector system, but then I sort of looked at how do you design a smoke detector a better way? And part of that involved lighting control, part of that involved control for the HVAC system, part of that involved control for, well, being able to sense temperature, being able to sense smoke concentration. And then, you know, at the time I was living in Shanghai, I'm on the 29th floor of -hmm. of some high-rise apartment building and trying to think about how I would extract better data if I could distribute those sensors. So, you know, when a fire starts in a place, where's the fire concentrated? Well, temperature sensors can tell me where the concentration of fire is. Smoke sensors can tell me where to direct people through the building, where the lowest concentration of smoke would actually be in the building. Lighting control actually gives me the ability to control the lighting in the building and actually direct people through Mm -hmm. those routes. HVAC control allows me to change the directionality, do some some sort of real-time sort of flow simulation on what's actually happening and actually direct smoke away from where those people are. Uh, proximity detection tells me where people are in the building. And you know that, if you think about an apartment complex which may have 4,000 people mm-hmm. living in it, is incredibly compelling. It's a lot more compelling than the you know plug a keyboard into my stove model, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's interesting about that is that designing those functionalities, if you have the right APIs in mm-hmm. software, is like, really easy but the hard thing is is then you're like oh yeah that'd be sweet if i could do that then you go off down this whole rabbit hole of okay well i'm gonna get this temperature sensor and then i need to see how it exactly. connects to other things and now i need to add a battery charger i see and like how am i going to do an enclosure and i need and then you go off like down this whole thing of like designing a separate product and spending mm-hmm. tens of mm-hmm. thousands of dollars making a product to you know that's actually really simple i mean it doesn't right it doesn't take a phd in electrical engineering to know how to get a temperature sensor and hook it up to a battery and like a radio but all that part of the design process is like super slow. Right, right. Well, I think one of the things that you hit on there too is that there is this market for people building small, already complete solutions to sensing temperature and sensing smoke and sensing Mm -hmm. all of these other things. And I think, you know, at that point then, the App Store model, if you think about the App Store model on a mobile phone, you had a fixed hardware platform. The App Store model under the IoT, uh, under the, the sort of next wave of IoT devices is really looking at how do I do that without a fixed hardware platform? How do I do that with a distributed hardware platform? And what if I were to separate all of the constituent elements of a mobile phone and just distribute them around my house? What would I be able to do with that? Uh, at that point, then you s- create this opportunity for for really two people, two types of, of people to sort of participate in this space. One, which are those people who are able to build those modular elements 
and then tie them into some sort of high-level system, right? Mm -hmm. So whether that's HomeKit, whether that's Amazon's IoT uh, system, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but then on the other side of that, you have this whole market of people who just want to interface to the real world. So if you, if, if you asked me uh, 10 years ago when I was working on this project, uh, would I buy an off-the-shelf temperature sensor that was already sort of discretized? In Are you this talking? Unit? You're talking this about a, a product, temperature sensor product. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, how how small can you make that? Mm -hmm. How tightly can you control the costs and uh, the physical size of the product and all of those other aspects of it? It's a temperature sensor, but it's more than a temperature sensor. It's a temperature sensor with the embedded drivers and services already embedded in it mm -hmm. with uh, the ability to then send that data back up into one of these other systems. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's really where this thing takes off is now you've got this whole market of prepackaged solutions. Then you have some custom solutions, which are a, a byproduct of sort of adopting this, this more modular approach to doing electronics, uh, which allow you to build a fully custom system. Uh, but then at that point, you have this other level of that, which is at the software level, this sort of app store model where people can now participate in this space to build these things. So maybe you want to be the person that goes in and disrupts healthcare. Mm -hmm. and you have access to all of the resources to interface to all of the equipment in the healthcare industry or just understand where your patients are, you know, what their vitals are, all of the other sort of aspects of, of sort of patients and patient care. That allows somebody who's a software developer to then jump into that space and say, hey, I, I can do something with that. Right. Because I think, you know, really what we're, trying to, what we're trying to achieve is a mechanism where we've got sort of the API to the real world, mm -hmm. but the real world is fundamentally hardware. Yeah. And it's fundamentally analog. And we have you to write a white paper called The Ego Death of the Mobile Phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and interestingly enough, you know, I think we focused on, on largely kind of all of the wrong things in that space initially. Uh, but we had to do that to understand what the right things right. were. Right. So I don't think anybody woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to distract IoT with the ability to control my lamp from my mobile phone. Right. You know, that's interesting. But, you know, I don't think anybody did that with malicious intent. It, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's also really annoying, right? If yeah. every time that I have to open up my phone to control my stereo at my house, uh, is that really the best interface for that? Yeah. You know, I've got an Echo sitting on a table at my house. I walk in the house, I'm like, Alexa, play Pandora, and Pandora comes on. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, yeah. now I have yeah. music in the house, right? So, you know, I don't know that the mobile phone is really what the platform is for that. But if you look at what the mobile phone has inside of it, if you could just take that and sort of take the exploded view of that and mm -hmm. distribute everything that a mobile phone has, well, now you've got baby monitors, patient monitors. Uh, yeah, why does I mean it is systems. all the same? It's all the same parts. Exactly, it's all the same exactly. stuff, and it's just remixed in different and, ways and differentiated by software. So exactly. that then that's, that's an efficient way to since it's differentiated by software. Yeah. And then that's a, uh, an efficient way to uh, to to use that ten to one ratio of software to hardware engineers. So you give all those software people the you know the the APIs that they need to understand it. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, once you have that ability to reach out and sort of contact the real world from a software standpoint, then you'll see the real sort of explosive growth, right? The the crazy in numbers that Intel was talking about and whatnot yeah. happening in yeah. that space. Well, I think, uh, why don't we, why don't we move on to, uh, to a new segment? The first, uh, the first segment is uh, called Click Spiral. And this is where <laughs> uh, we, we each describe something that has pulled us into and what, what seems like an endless, um, period of, you know, Wikipedia, 
holes or or you know shopping around catalogs that you didn't know existed <laughs> or or trying to solve problems that seem unsolvable and um if aren't, you aren't related to what you're currently supposed to be working on yeah or yeah. Or, or, or sometimes are but very obliquely and, <laughs> right. and and three years later it's it's helpful to know something about the uh the the corporate genealogy of archer daniels midland <laughs> yeah uh, and 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 you're glad that you fell down that particular wikipedia rabbit hole so if if you the listener would like to to contribute to this by sending in a a click spiral that you'd like david and me to to get engaged with and lose an afternoon to, uh, you may email it to hardware at O'Reilly.com. And then we'll, um, we'll talk about it on the podcast uh, on a later episode. But uh, why don't we start with the guest, uh, Matt, tell us about a, a recent click spiral. You okay. Found. So, so, and, and, you know, this will probably not reflect well on me. My new thing is kind of in this borderlands of philosophy as it sort of approaches uh science fiction and science in general because science is kind of the thing that sort of dominates my life but i've been i've been listening to and I, you know all apologies to you guys i've been listening to this philosophy bites podcast mm-hmm. and i started following then these guys on this philosophy bites uh website and then you know into that into that sort of space and doing all of this research now on the simulation argument mm-hmm which is the argument for whether or not we actually live in a simulated world. Nice. And, uh, you know, it started actually with a, with a Ted talk from Nick Bostrom, who is, uh, this philosophy professor, I think at Cambridge talking about the possibility that we actually live in a simulated universe and sort of establishing that there's three aspects uh, or three, three possible scenarios. One of which is we don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the other is, is that some intelligent being has evolved to a place in which they were capable of creating simulations, but didn't, which is probably unlikely. And then the other aspect of that is that we are almost invariably living in a simulation because the cost, if you had the ability to generate a simulation, the cost of generating simulations would be so relatively cheap, particularly if you did it in the computing environment, hmm. that we would invariably create multiple, probably many millions of simulations. And this idea that uh, under that premise, the likelihood that you are actually the real sentient being right. is, is actually really, really low. And everything <laughs> else is is points to the fact that we actually live in a simulated universe. And it's axiomatic, so we would never know that right. we actually live in this simulated universe. But does it, it comes down to this like probabilistic argument that if um, there's a small chance that someone has developed this simulation technology, but if they have... There are so many simulations that there's a large <laughs> chance you're in a simulation exactly. and you multiply exactly. these probabilities together and probably we're in a simulation. Exactly. Exactly. And oh, it, God. so that Philosophy Bites podcast, you know, pulled me into that. I, I, I'm a runner. I like to go running. I listen to it when I when I go running. Uh, and that sort of pulled me in that direction. And I started to just then, you know, I got home and I went on this crazy, you know, and I'll plug it here, kind of click spiral looking yeah. for all of the mm-hmm. information that I could find around the simulation argument. And it's extraordinary. Is this I mean, related the, to the holographic universe thing? It, it is. It is actually. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, there, there are a couple of premises which are sort of flawed in, in the belief that AI somehow needs to reflect our own level of intelligence before we would ever launch it. Mm-hmm. There is uh, another school of thought which says that actually if you just simulate the origin points of the universe and you do that in accelerated time scale inside of the computing environment, that invariably those simulated models would actually result in the formation of intelligent life. And you have a big enough computer. Exactly. So yeah. you would have some, some possibility of generating intelligent life based on the numbers of simulations that you launch, which would mean that 
by definition, then you would have to launch a lot of simulations to mm -hmm. see that happen. If you compress that timescale into the computing environment, and then you actually saw that happen, it would mean that we would probably never actually know the simulators, that they would have no means, they could actually be relatively ignorant mm -hmm. to this process, yeah. uh, and would have no means to insert themselves at a mm -hmm. level in which they had the sort of advanced intelligence that forms as a byproduct of the simulation. So, so it, we, we could be inside a black box machine learning algorithm. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's a good click spiral. What's <laughs> yeah. the name of the podcast again? Uh, Philosophy Bites. Philosophy Bites. Philosophy we'll include Bites. a link to that in the, in the blog post associated with this podcast. Awesome, awesome. David, what's your click spiral? My click spiral is that uh, I'm a huge uh, hardware user interfaces nerd, and <laughs> my good friend Ramey, who I know from MIT, had a one of those old Lisp machine Space Cadet keyboards in a closet that he gave to me yesterday. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how to get the protocol off of it so I can make a USB converter to it. So back in the day when they made when they made Lisp machines, um, mm -hmm. you know, computers were much more about a tool that you have this this dialogue with, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, this this goes along actually with the whole artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and and like constructing an environment thing because like you would you would have a computer that you sit down and you actually are interacting with it. You write functions that are part of other functions and you can build up any kind of functionality and everything is abstracted into objects. And so like, you know, if you're running a program, you can and it like crashes, you can pause execution, bring up another window and like actually edit the program that was just running and like you can drop down into editing the editor and everything is like completely recursive. Um, but the hardware interfaces for these things, uh, this is like one of the original actual computer keyboards that looks like a computer keyboard, but it was designed for use with like Emacs. And like if you've ever used <laughs> Emacs, it has all these these arcane key combinations and it doesn't really make any sense. But when you take into context what kind of hardware that that was originally running on, it totally makes sense because um, you know, these keyboards, they were thinking a computer is something that you, you learn how to play more like an instrument, like an organ or, mm -hmm. a, or a piano rather than something you sit and like click on cells and excel with. And so, so there's like many different, they call them Bucky keys, the modifier keys. There's like, what is it? I just got this thing last night and all the legit list people are going to murder me for not knowing this <laughs> off the top of my head. But you know, they've got like, um, <clears throat> you know, it does have shift to control, but it also has like super hyper and meta buttons as well um, <laughs> so that you can access you know all the different functions on your thing you know i mean i'm sure everybody knows someone who they work with who's like obsessed with keyboard shortcuts for their for their favorite tools mm -hmm. like, i wouldn't know anybody like that yeah yeah exactly and so no, I mean, no like, one who has ever printed out one of those maps yeah. and, <laughs> and so like over the all the stuff that those guys are into is like nothing compared to the types of things that you can accomplish with one of these keyboards because it's i mean it's like half cording and half typing so does um, it, it plug a into a sense. serial port? Oh no, it has some like crazy like ribbon cable that comes out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and like the PCB, it's from 1981. I took it apart and like the PCB is all hand drawn. Oh, beautiful. It's like wow. actually... The um, schematic exists on the board. <laughs> well, no, yeah, exactly. And like, so I was actually looking around and I, I just can't find any documentation about how the actual insides of the keyboard work. Like there's a little bit of documentation about how the protocol works, mm -hmm. but I cannot find any hardware documentation at all. That's because you're not an engineer in 1981 with like a grease pencil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this stuff onto the... Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like a, this is like a, a keyboard designed for like people who are doing, designed for and by people who are doing serious math and science. And, yeah. you yeah. know, Lisp and Lisp machines were originally made um, back in the early days of AI and were like designed for being able to quickly like build up your own AI programs and experiment with them and, and 
quickly and quickly change things and work on stuff. And so this whole interface is designed for doing stuff like that. <laughs> That's an excellent click spiral. <laughs> All right, John, what do you got? All right. Um, well, as as both of you know, it's chilly in San Francisco, mm. and it has been chilly in San Francisco for the last week or so. Um, and so I have uh, uh, figured out how to turn on the heat in my house, which um, I didn't actually <laughs> use last year. It turns out that we have radiant heating, radiant electrical heat, which are these mats over the ceilings that um, they should be in the floor. And I don't know why yeah. they're in the ceiling, but they're in the, they're in the ceiling uh, and they run on 220 volts. And um, when you turn on the thermostat, there's a, a, a lag of an hour or so while these things like slowly heat up. And then you have the vague feeling that your ceiling is warm, but you never actually get warm until it's been on for a few hours beyond that. So perfect case for a programmable thermostat, at least, or ideally like a Nest, right? So right. you can turn it on right. three hours before you go home. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I took the, the old dumb thermostat off the wall uh, to do the Nest compatibility check and discovered that... Uh, unfortunately it's not at all compatible with the nest it uses this this super primitive thermostat that sits directly on the 240 volt line oh. and uh switches the goddamn thing on and off <laughs> so there are like you know two 10 gauge wires coming in one side and two 10 gauge wires <laughs> coming out the other side so there's what there's like three standards for heating wiring or something right it's like there's yeah. the there's yeah. the one that nest uses which is like what do they call it it's like 12 volt 24 one. volt ac yeah 24 volt ac yeah but you just have what they call line voltage which yep. is 240 and the nest is not designed for that that's right so yeah you're you're um you're absolutely right it turns out that nest the nest thermostat runs on 24 volts ac mm -hmm. and and is intended you know and this this part makes sense it's intended to sit on a separate control loop that's not yeah. in the middle of the line that's going to your heater yeah. so um but 24 volts ac is a little odd um, so I've been I've been in a giant click spiral trying to figure out first of all how to how uh, HVAC controls work. Mm -hmm. This stuff was all developed in yeah. like the 50s when the the idea was that uh, um, you know you would have uh, thermostat loops and when programmable thermostats arose they started out by sort of like just sipping enough current out of the the control wire. To, to run the, the circuitry inside. And then they developed another protocol at some point that gave it enough um, juice to, to run these things. So I've been trying to figure out how to build a, um, a control loop for my high voltage uh, electric heating system. And maybe I can hit you up for advice in, this, in the same <laughs> sure. way that, uh, that I think doctors walk around a lot and, and they're like, I'm a doctor. And people are like, oh, you're a doctor. Can you look at this mole? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, just like yeah, bum exactly. some medical advice. I have been bumming electrical engineering rash. advice yeah, exactly. off of everyone. And um, for instance, I was talking with David about it the other day on the phone and uh, David's an electrical engineer, but he's like, oh my God, line voltage. I don't know. <laughs> and, um, so uh, basically I, th I think you can add um, you know, put in a, a 240 to, to 24 volt transformer to power the nest sure. and then um, and then add a, a relay, which back. is controlled by a 24 volt circuit to to regulate the 240 volt circuit. Right. And that right. all you should need are these two components. Yeah. But then the, the click spiral is that I'm going back and forth between confidence and the belief that all you need are these two relatively well-engineered <laughs> components and you just slap them together and hey, there's a circuit breaker on the line that's got to do something, right? right. <laughs> and, uh, and then also going into like the, the opposite where everyone on the internet shares David's uh, apprehension along the lines of, oh my God, you can't do that on right. line voltage. Right. Right. Um, 
So you just have to know how to do it right, basically. Right. Yeah. Because right. you could hurt yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and doing it right is a matter of which is like, not a good reason to not do something, but it's just right. important to pay attention. But yeah. doing it right yeah. is a matter of trade more than like more than engineering cleverness. You just like mm-hmm. like the the electrical the electricians who would implement something like this are not necessarily like designing the circuit and being brilliant about it. They just have some set of code recommendations about how to connect these wires or something. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, presumably there's going to be some drop-in solution, which is the the sort of conversion between those two things. Otherwise, it does become a, a an engineering problem mm-hmm. um, to the extent that you know you're going to want opto isolation and all of these other sorts of things to kind of separate these two elements and keep them mm-hmm. totally independent of each other. So that way, you know, you not only don't kill the nest, but mm-hmm. you don't potentially you know introduce line voltage to this thing that you might go over to the wall and touch uh-huh. um you know i would i would want those two things to be totally independent yeah. because particularly if the nest has any sort of you know touch controlled interface on the unit itself mm-hmm. this is true yeah uh you can have a pretty catastrophic yeah you'll be touching you'll be touching a conductor won't yeah, you yeah yeah, exactly. yeah yeah that's a good point um hmm. so i you know i would i would hope to try to avoid that i mean you know presumably internal to the nest they're going to have the isolation anyway right because the nest despite the fact that the nest is actually switching the 24 volt ac yeah uh it's not controlled by the 24 volt ac it has a rectifier and a transformer of its own exactly exactly so it's creating its own power supply internally so you know presumably the front end of that is already isolated but i would you know i'd still want to isolate the back end mm, yeah uh, so you're giving me a, a cautious uh thumbs up <laughs> uh yeah so so well and and you know take it with a grain of salt because i'm inclined to try to do those things myself yeah. and say yeah. oh you know there's probably an off the cell i mean this you know this gets into exactly what i was talking about earlier so i am my my own worst enemy mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in <laughs> advancing electronics forward to the extent that Oh yeah, well I'll just figure that out myself. Right, 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 right. Why would I use some off-the-shelf module which already mm-hmm. does yeah. exactly right. what I need? When I can to do. build it, yeah, <laughs> I can build it myself. Oh yeah, no, my bomb cost for this project <laughs> is higher than the off-the-shelf module that, that Honeywell <laughs> makes that does exactly this. But that that off-the-shelf module is an ugly like powder-coated steel box, and oh, uh, yeah. I want to. Uh, to Who doesn't ma- want a din rail in their living room? Like I don't understand <laughs> it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on on the on the on the um, the the cautionary side of of this argument that's playing out in my head, I I encountered a bunch of videos uh, from Electroboom related to this project. <laughs> Do you guys know about Electroboom? Yeah, yeah. It's this uh, for the listener. It's this YouTube channel by a, a an engineer in Vancouver who does these kind of campy. Um, videos about how electronics work where he like builds circuits and then plugs them into main voltage and the sh- the, sh- <laughs> yeah. the shtick is that like these things always explode like the will, first will time it he does blend. it yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. just like the will yeah. it blend of like here's how a resistor works i've got my two leads here i clipped them off with a wire cutter and i'm going to plug this into <laughs> yeah. this uh this surge suppressor strip and now i'm going to touch a resistor to the end and and then he like singes his finger as the resistor heats up and and then he he and then you know he swears and it beeps it out yeah, and then yeah. it cuts yeah. and then yeah. they're like I'm back everyone with laughs this. yeah exactly. yeah exactly um anyway well well so we'll 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 post some links to uh to all of these click spirals in the blog post associated with this uh, and also it's important to note that in the course of your project you will absolutely be following all necessary safety and regulatory uh constraints which are appropriate for modifying one's own main voltage inside of one's house that's correct if my homeowner's insurance company is listening to this i want them (laughs) to know that i take these things seriously i'm doing this in consultation with electrical engineers both of whom have sort of it is dangerous it It is well i mean it is it is a dangerous thing to be doing 
Yeah. So Matt, if people want to find you, uh, where should they look? So, uh, well, they can find me on Hackaday. Supply Frame actually owns Hackaday. Uh, oh, that's who bought Hackaday. I remember that yeah. there was some vague, like, yeah, we, so we have bought new Hackaday, corporate, we bought corporate overload thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we are the we are the new corporate overloads, overlords. overlords um, yeah. yeah, so uh, they can find me on Hackaday. If you go to Hackaday.io, which is a project site, you can set up your uh, okay. your heating control system on Hackaday.io. Uh, if you just go to Hackaday.io slash Matt, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Great to have you back. No, no, thank you. Thank you. It was really cool. It was yeah. great coming by. Thanks a lot. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner.